0: You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK, Quad Cities, NPR.
1: to the Heartland Politics show and podcast, which is aired on and distributed by WVIK Quad Cities NPR. WVIK is the flagship public radio station in the Quad Cities region of Northwestern Illinois and Eastern Iowa. This is your host, Robin Johnson, and today I want to focus on a new book that examines the American dream. This idea has long been an essential part of American identity, our DNA, if you will, But in recent decades, the dream has faded for many people, and the state of the American dream right now has become essential to understanding our current political divide. My guest today is David Leonhardt, who's a senior writer for the New York Times, who's also won a Pulitzer Prize for commentary. I'm really delighted to have him here because this book is very important uh, for folks, and I'm I'm sure our listeners are going to agree. It's called Ours... I'm sorry, ours was the shining future, the story of the American Dream. David, it's really an honor to have you on with me today.
0: Oh, thank you so much. and thanks for having me. i'll I have to tell you, I've been to a minor league baseball game years ago in the Quad cities, the river bandits. So oh, I'm yeah, ex- yeah, they're still here and going strong. Uh, I'm excited to be to be talking to you and to your listeners. There's so much here, and we're not going to get to
1: it. And, and that's why I recommend our readers pick up this book. But it's such a well-written book with so many different angles. I like how you picked some players out in American history that uh, people maybe wouldn't recognize right off that played significant roles in this. But first of all, provide our listeners, I I think we're all pretty well aware, but what is the American dream? And, And I guess I want to skip ahead to when did it start kind of fading and falling apart in our country's history?
0: So uh, the original definition, which I actually think is still a lovely definition, comes from a historian named James Truslow Adams um, in a book published uh, in 1931, which is pretty remarkable because that's the depths of the Depression. Um, And nonetheless, he defined the American dream as that dream of a better, richer, happier life for all our citizens of every rank. And he he called it the the United States' most important contribution to world culture. And there's so much I like about that, right? In in the definition of the idea of progress, better, richer, happier. The idea of social mobility for all of our citizens of every rank. And the idea that there's something distinctly American about it. And as bad as things were in 1931, in the decades that followed, it really became true. Um, life for most Americans was longer, was healthier, was richer. And yeah, we still had, you know, really terrible problems. We There were diseases that people died from, including my grandfather, that today probably would be cured. There, there was terrible racism and, racism and religious discrimination. But for all groups of Americans, life was getting better in terms of material and and health metrics. And then really... You can either date the this modern era of stagnation really to the to the mid 70s or to the early 80s. And, and you really start to see things slow. And for typical Americans, starting about the mid 70s, um, income growth really slows down. And I think that contributes to a lot of the frustration and anger that we see in American society today.
1: It's uh, and you you talk uh, divide this three key factors in democratic capitalism, which I think is an important term here uh, that our country (laughs) right now is still trying to figure out again, uh, wrestling over this. But um, three forces that drove its rise and fall. Which which of those and I'll let you describe them briefly, but which is most important?
0: So the three forces of power. By which I mainly mean political power, culture. By which I mainly mean the culture in corporate America and the private sector economy, and investment, um, and that's both the public sector and the private sector. Although the public sector's role is vital, and I think political power has been the most important because it's important on its own terms, and it also helps drive the others. And so. We used to have very large grassroots movements in this country that were really to lifting the living standards of of ordinary Americans. Um labor unions, large labor unions were the most important of them. But we also, the Democratic party was also much more devoted to to the living standards of ordinary people, and quite frankly, so was the Republican Party. And what we've had happen in recent decades is, the Republican Party has really embraced this idea of laissez-faire capitalism that we moved to in the 1980s, and that the people who are advocating it, Ronald Reagan, Milton Friedman, Robert Bork, I'll tell the story of Robert Bork, he's famous for other reasons, but he's fascinating as an economic thinker. They made very specific promises, which is this model of, of laissez-faire capitalism with more global trade. And fewer labor unions, and lower taxes, particularly for rich people, and less regulation, and companies that get larger and larger. They said that would lead to prosperity for absolutely everyone, and it really hasn't. It's led to huge income increases for for the wealthy, and and big gains in the stock market, and really disappointing wage increases for most Americans. And when you look beyond the economics and look at things like life expectancy. Um, things over the last four or five decades have been really, really disappointing. And the Democratic Party, for its part, um, I think still advocates some economic policies that have that have a better record of success. But the Democratic Party has become quite disdainful of many working class people and and really disrespectful of their views on a whole lot of issues. I think immigration is a really good case right now. Most Americans of every demographic group believe in in border security and the democratic party basically has had to be pushed into agreeing to some some border security measures and so the democratic party has really increasingly become a party of highly educated professionals more affluent professionals who have very liberal views on a long list of social issues and and it's it's alienating to a lot of working class people who have more moderate or conservative views on religion and patriotism and a whole bunch of other issues.
1: I thought, and for our listeners, this entire book is good. But if there's one or two chapters, I would pick out the chapter on immigration, uh, and Barbara Jordan, who I remember as a congresswoman from Texas during the Watergate hearings. But her involvement in the immigration issue is fascinating. Uh, and for those right now people trying to understand our current debates, I, I wish everybody could read this chapter, especially our legislators. I know they won't. Thank you
0: the immigration oh. chapter is chapter 9 for anyone yeah. who the book and 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 only wants to read that
1: and how she, her views which is a democrat and a progressive um i'll I'll just let you kind of talk about that a little bit and what happened there but i think her views are probably where most americans are right now
0: that's correct um so uh basically uh, immigration has become this issue in which It's fascinating. Historically, the people who argued for very open immigration laws tended to be business conservatives because they believe that it would help hold down wages. Um, Bernie Sanders actually um, years ago, not that many years ago, 2015, said, look. There's a reason why all these CEOs keep talking about comprehensive immigration reform, and I don't think it's because they're particularly concerned with the lives of the undocumented, they, they want to hold wages down. And so that was sort of the old tradition. And Barbara Jordan, a congresswoman from Texas, a civil rights pioneer, um, she said immigration is vital. We are a nation of immigrants. Um, we must remain a beacon for people fleeing repression. But that both halves of that phrase, a nation of immigrants, a phrase that JFK popularized, are important. Um, and to be a nation, you must have borders and you must make decisions about whom you are going to be. And you can't admit when you're in a rich country like the United States, everyone who wants to come in. Um, there are a lot of rich countries that have much more restrictive immigration laws than we do. Japan and South Korea are two examples. And so Georgia in the 90s basically pushed as the head of a commission from Bill Clinton for a compromise in which he would provide a path to citizenship um, for people who had moved here without legal permission. But she also paired that with real border security. Powers, um, uh, an E-Verify system, so employers had to prove the people who were here Um, uh, were actually citizens to to stop future uh, illegal immigration. And really significant border security measures and a reduction in overall immigration because um, basically the American people never voted for uh, an immigration system as open as the one that we de facto have. And it's been really interesting to see the Democratic Party move so far away from that. Um, And if you read the Democratic Party's 2020 um, uh, platform on immigration, it says virtually nothing about the idea of border security. It never contains the phrase, um, and it is full of ideas um, of expanding immigration. And that's just not historically where civil rights activists and labor union leaders and progressives have been. They have said, we need immigration. We are a nation of immigrants, but we also need a border. Um, We need to operate under the rule of law, and we need to make sure that we don't have an immigration system that is actually harming the the most vulnerable people who already live in this country, both Uh Native Americans and recent immigrants who are already here. You've talked about the Democrats a lot here, and and
1: I'm fascinated in this history as well. And and just for our listeners, again, this book is not ideological one side or the other. It's not partisan one way or the other. It's very even-handed and fair. And you, you take off after the elites in the party. And I think this is going right where we are today with this rather remarkable movement of working class voters who are a mainstay, the New Deal coalition, over to the Republicans. And you make a point of saying this isn't about race. That more a lot of this, I mean, perhaps a little bit of it is. I mean, I wouldn't want to say none of it is. But um, that it, this happened in the 60s where the, the elites got more interested in, in purity rather than persuasion and I'm winning in the courts instead of winning in the legislatures. And I think that's very true today, even to
0: this day. I agree. Look, as you just said, some of this is about race, right? I mean, um, there are definitely Republicans who use race baiting, and and Donald Trump has said some outright racist things, and I don't wanna pretend otherwise. Um, But I think one of the real mistakes that the political left in our country makes is say, anyone who doesn't vote for us must be a racist, right? Um, Why can't we just turn them back to the economic policy and the fact that that we are in favor of economic policy that's better for low-income people? Well, I I would remind Democrats that there are a whole number of affluent Democrats who don't vote their economic interests. They vote for tax increases on themselves. Look at places like Aspen, Colorado, or Martha's Vineyard, or the high-income suburbs of Chicago, or New York, or San Francisco. Um, People are voting for tax increases on themselves because they believe the Democrats are, are in tune with their values. And that's how many working class people see the Republican Party today because of how far the Democratic Party has moved away from them. And one of the figures in the book whose story I tell, the book is really a mix of of people you've never heard of whose story I tell, people maybe you've heard a little bit, and people who are actually quite well known, but I think their significance is underestimated. You and I have talked about Barbara Jordan, mentioned Robert Bork. Maybe a couple others of those are Dwight Eisenhower um, and Robert Kennedy. Very, very famous people. But I think their, their historical significance is a little bit missed. And Robert F. Kennedy, senior, not junior, is remembered rightly as a liberal hero. He was a pioneer on civil rights. He was the most popular white politician in Black America in 1968. Um, he was the only politician who got an ovation, uh, kind of informal ovation from the crowd at Martin Luther King's funeral. Um, uh, and he had a, he believed in a very progressive economic policy, but when he ran for president in '68, you can see all this discussion in the national media, including the New York Times, quite saying, "Wait, where does this conservative Bobby Kennedy come from?" And that's because many liberals in 1968 basically were disdainful of people fighting in Vietnam. And refused to talk about rising crime. Crime rose a lot in the 1960s, and and RFK said no. If we if we take if we tell issue voters just ignore those issues, I'm not going to talk about law and order. I'm not gonna not going to talk about some of the 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 honor of soldiers serving in Vietnam. We're going to lose. And Bobby Kennedy actually ran a campaign that was very focused on the idea of law and order. It was also very focused on the idea of racial justice. And he he showed that you can talk, you can appeal to social moderates and social conservatives, not all of them, to be clear, but to a crucial slice of them um, while also being very clear that you believe in, in racial equality. And I think the final thing quickly is after Donald Trump won in 2016, and I've already said, Donald Trump has said racist things. He appeals to the segment of voters who, in fact, hold these discriminatory beliefs. But after he won in 2016, there were a lot of Democrats who said his appeal is only racism. And I think, I think that opinion was wrong at the time. And I think it's aged really badly because over the last five years, a meaningful segment of Asian American and Latino voters have moved toward the Republican Party and even a couple percentage points of African-American voters have moved toward the Republican Party. And if 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 this move of the working class to the right were all about race, boy, it's hard to explain why we also see it now among voters of color in addition to white voters.
1: You're listening to Heartland Politics on WVIK Quad Cities NPR. This is your host, Robin Johnson, and my guest today is David Leinhardt, who's a um, a columnist, writer for the New York Times, Pulitzer Prize winner, and he's authored his first book. It's one I highly recommend, folks. It's called Ours Was the Shining Future, The Story of the American Dream. We've been talking a little bit about that. You know, David, I, this topic, uh, I started this radio show about 10 years ago, right before Trump was elected, and I've, I've focused a lot on what's happening in our politics, the huge transformations. Every time you get deep into this topic, it seems to lead back to 1968, And three individuals, George Wallace, Richard Nixon, and Bobby Kennedy. And your book does as well. And I think to understand this, I mean, Bobby Kennedy was such a transformational figure. We'll never know what would have happened. But uh, Richard Nixon's the other one. And I want to, you talk about these these figures you bring up in this book. Some are obscure, some are not. But the, and I'm going to mispronounce his name probably, but Jerome Rossow, the Rossow Report. Yeah. Talk about that. I mean, that is so prescient, uh, I, I guess, in what happened. And I
0: had never heard of this before. So Nixon wins in 68, very narrow. After RFK is assassinated, Hubert Humphrey gets the Democratic nomination. It's possible Humphrey would have gotten it anyway. We don't know. Um, and Nixon then wins in 68 very narrowly, but it's a three-way race in which Wallace gets um, uh, George Wallace, the segregationist Alabama governor, gets a big part of the vote. And it's interesting because although Wallace had run in 64 for the Democratic nomination, embracing his image as a segregationist. And obviously the whole country still knew he was a segregationist. in 68, he tried to downplay that part of his background and instead he he ran against hippies right rather than against he he, he ran against disorder rather than rather focusing on his pro segregation views nixon had a choice between basically trying to outflank wallace to the right and not and nixon chose not to it is true he adopted the, the famous southern strategy um, uh, of embracing Southern conservatives, although that was originally to, to beat Ronald Reagan for the nomination rather than to win the, the election. And so Nixon wins. and He's not like a pro-business Republican the way we think of Republicans now. He won with a fair amount of, of, of union support. And he basically has to decide as president, do I do what the right wing of the Republican Party wants or try to be a pro-worker Republican? And he and he names or someone under him names this aide, Jerome Rossau, to write this report on the state of working class America. And it's it's really quite prescient. It was based on an article in New York Magazine by Pete Hamill that Nixon had read, and he wanted to understand it better about the working class in this country, particularly the white working class. But Rossau, to his credit, expanded the focus to, to both the white and Black working class. The Latino and Asian population in 1968 was still quite small. And it's just a fascinating look at, at at how working class people thought American society was beginning to move away from them for reasons we've talked about, because of the Vietnam War, um, patriotism was out of fashion, um, because m- increasingly people were being told the only way to get a good job is to go to college. Um, and it is really this fascinating look. And I think another thing that's important to remember is Nixon really did govern as a moderate. He he introduced he signed more regulatory legislation than anyone since FDR. Sometimes Democratic Congress pushed him to do it, but he didn't veto it. He signed it. Um, uh, he he really governed as a moderate into the 1970s. He was also, despite what he said, a crook, right? He did oversee the. Wedding. But even into 1976, the Republican Party is fairly moderate on economics. Ronald Reagan tries to win the nomination again in 76 from Gerald Ford and he loses. Uh, a, a big anti-tax initiative in Michigan goes down to major defeat in 76. And one of the stories that I is: okay, how is it that in just four years, 1976 to 1980, the Republican party basically goes from being the party of Eisenhower and Nixon on economics, which is more conservative than the Democrats, but still quite moderate to the party of Ronald Reagan that really pushes this this laissez faire agenda um, you make a statement
1: in the book i'd like to, exp- to expand on a little bit but you say that um, in many ways we're still living in the nixon era is that uh, is that culture is that economics is that both
0: it's i think it's i think it's politics and culture more than economics So Reagan ended the Nixon era in terms of economic policy. Reagan cut taxes in ways that Nixon never did. Reagan allowed corporate mergers um, that previous Republican administrations never had. Reagan famously um, tried to go after unions by by firing the air traffic controllers. By the way, this is also a little story I've in the book. The air traffic controllers had endorsed Ronald Reagan. Um, They were a perfect foil for him. They were a very unsympathetic union. Um, And... um, But I think we're still living in the Nixon era in the following way. The campaigns of 68 and 72 ended the New Deal political alignment we had. With the Democrats moving uh, to the left on a whole bunch of sort of social and cultural issues, and yes, race is one of them, just not the only one of them, Um, Republicans had an opening to appeal to working class voters. And then And so that's 68, where Wallace takes off a bunch of these particularly Southern voters. But the Democrats still have a chance to win them back. And Humphrey nearly wins. And he nearly wins in part because labor unions run a big campaign reminding workers how anti-union George Wallace was. And Humphrey wins back a whole bunch of them late in the campaign. But by 72, when Nixon's running for re-election, the Democrats basically go all in on this more upscale version of the left, the new left. And George McGovern, despite in his personal background not being an upscale Democrat, embraces it. And Nixon absolutely crushes McGovern. I mean, a massive landslide because these middle-class and working-class voters are really turned off by this new version of the Democratic Party. I don't want to exaggerate the Democratic Party's political weaknesses, right? They they won the popular vote. Uh, is it six out of seven or seven out of the last eight elections? I mean, they, you know, I do not yeah. want to exaggerate it. However, what we see emerge in 16 and 72 is a Democratic Party that really struggles with working class voters in a way, beginning to struggle in a way that it, it did not before. And that's really continued. And today, you know, there are, there are about 20 states in the United States and Iowa is now one of them. Uh, where democrats basically struggle to win any statewide elections and when there are about 20 states where you can't basically win a single senator seat um it's really hard to to get a governing governing majority
1: you know you you use the key word here that that i think some of the democrats now are 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 overlooking and that's uh, robert kennedy we keep going back to the 60s but robert kennedy Understood the math, the arithmetic of the class divide, and that's something some Democrats need to figure out in in, in today's t- today's society. Just that there's more folks without degrees, and that seems to be uh, you, you know the the trouble, the hurdle that the Democrats have in these days. Do you do you think? I, I guess that you know Donald Trump um, certainly campaigned anyway, and some of his measures were designed to attract working class voters, or tariffs. And he actually seemed to listen to folks uh, out in this region anyway, where the factories closed and moved overseas. He seems to be trying to drive their economic policy back a little bit towards maybe um, a Nixon type economic policy. Although, you know, I know he passed the tax cuts and all of that. But do you see anything there where that's part of the attraction of Trump, his economic policies, or is it more back on this cultural
0: side? I don't think Trump cares that much about policy. And so, um, with a couple exceptions. And so, I think he is a mix of policies under Trump that it's really hard to tell a consistent story about. So, absolutely, in terms of his skepticism of trade and his hostility to immigration, that is sort of a version of populist conservatism. But he also really cut taxes on rich people, um, he made it easier for companies to work. He went after labor unions. Um, He generally deregulated. And so um, if you have to tote it all up, I I think Trump's a lot closer to sort of a laissez-faire neoliberal uh, than he is to a populist conservative. Um, But in his rhetoric, he certainly uses a lot of the ideas of populist conservatism. And and I think it's important to say, Trump is also pretty disdainful of democracy, um, January 6th being the biggest example. And um, that that is not in any way uh, a necessary part of of populist conservatism. It's just not, and and I think it's really worrisome um, for those of us who who believe in in democracy and believe in the United States of America. Um, the idea of authoritarianism, the idea of not respecting the will of the voters, using the office of the presidency to enrich yourself as the Trumps did, that's not in any way uh, a necessary or even a consistent part of, of populist conservatism. And um for those people who are interested in the ideas of populist conservatism, and I'm and I think some of them are are quite interesting and I think others are are wrongheaded, but but I do think that it's really interesting. There's this group called American Compass, um, which has gotten a bunch of people interested in it. And they've put out a bunch of ideas where they've said, you know, labor unions are really important and they also shouldn't just be a subsidiary of the Democratic Party, uh, and they've said, you know, free trade, which is not actually conservative. So let's talk about how we can and do a better job with trade. And um, I, I find a lot of their ideas quite interesting.
1: We only have about a couple minutes left, David. Here, and I'm, I'm for our audience. I've just scratched the surface on this book. I've got a page of notes, and I've I've barely done a third of them as far as my questions here, but what's going to be integral to restoring the American dream for more people? I mean, you talk about several things here if you want to focus on one or two ideas in the time we have remaining. Well,
0: why, don't I, why don't I focus on politics? It's not like individual <laughs> politics, um, but but politics. I understand why so many Americans are cynical about the state of politics. I, I just mentioned some of the reasons to be concerned about um, about authoritarianism and 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 the t- deterioration of democracy. Um, uh, but I would really encourage people not to get too cynical. I, I tell the story in the book of, of people who overcame enormous odds um, in American history. Um, uh, a. Philip Randolph, the union leader, is is one of my favorites. But I think it's worth focusing for a minute on just how successful and effective our political system, with all of its problems has been and can be at changing this country. And so it's not just the New Deal era, which is now nearly a century ago, where grassroots politics have changed this country. It's also more recent. In the last 60 years, we've had a civil rights movement that has used grassroots politics to change this country. We've had a women's movement, had the Disability Rights Movement, more recently, when I were having this conversation 20 years ago, I don't think either of us did how quickly the movement for same-sex marriage and gay rights and marriage equality would have succeeded. It's remarkable. Um, and if you're, a uh, the, the thing I would add to the list is the movement to restrict abortion. Um, when this Court passed Roe v. Wade 50 years ago, social conservatives didn't say the system is rigged. Uh, We can never change it. They organized, they took over the Republican Party, they won local elections, um, and they changed laws. And so I think grassroots politics remain incredibly effective to change this country. I haven't even given you all the examples. A grassroots movement basically prevented Donald Trump from repealing Obamacare. Um, a grassroots movement has helped lift the minimum wage in blue, purple, and red states. A grassroots movement has helped the healthcare expansions through voter initiatives on Obamacare in blue, red, and purple states. I guess mostly red and purple because in blue states, the legislature has just done it. Um, and so grassroots politics really can work. It can work in our modern era. I think the the one of the big problems we've had is we have not had grassroots movements, large grassroots movements dedicated above all to lifting the living standards of ordinary Americans. And, and if we did, whether those movements be focused on trying to make it easier for people to join labor unions, form labor unions and get wage increases at private companies, whether it would be focused on, on lowering the cost of health care or focused on providing better education, even for people who don't have the money to, to go to fancy schools, I really think those are the kinds of movements that can succeed And and I think if we tried harder to lift most Americans living standards, I still think we could lift most Americans living standards.
1: It's great to end up on a, on a positive note. So much of what's going on doesn't lend itself to that. But I really appreciate, uh, David Leinhart, you taking the time today to be on Heartland Politics. The book is called Ours Was the Shining Future, The Story of the American Dream. It's an outstanding book. And I really think uh, the entire thing's good, but there's parts I think that our listeners would really learn a lot from in, in, in the context of today's politics. But uh, uh, again, David, thank you so much for being on today.
0: Well, Robin, I really appreciate that. And I I really enjoyed this conversation and, and thank you for letting me talk with you and your audience. heartland politics with robin johnson a presentation of wvik quad cities npr